This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Um, And good to be diving back into Psalms today. And so we're going to be in Psalm 116 today. Uh, as we kind of go, th- continue to go through our journey through the Psalms. And I'm just going to start off with a real quick introduction before we do the thing where we like stand and read the word of the Lord together. Uh, the, the first one is that this Psalm is, is unique in the sense that um, it, it's a part of a commonly sung group of Psalms. We're going to talk about that later. And it was always intended to be a song that became other people's song. And so part of the goal today is to ask questions or to recognize questions that this psalm invites us to ask of ourselves so that we might be able to sing what the author sung. Does that make sense? We might be able to join in. Not a historical learning of a song, but a present-day learning and living of one. It's kind of our goal as we dive uh, dive into Psalm 116 and walk through it together this morning. David is commonly attributed the authorship, but it's not written in the subtitle. It's just by scholars saying, that sounds like David. So we're, we're probably best to just say, you know, we think the Holy Spirit is the author and just trust with that. May or may not have been King David. It's certainly not outside of the norm uh, for him, but it's not necessarily to him. So if I, say, if I say David said today, that's just because I've made a slip. Uh, we don't actually fully know the authorship, but we do trust that it's, it's the words of the Holy Spirit and the word of the Lord. And in that vein, let's go ahead and stand together and read the word of the Lord this morning. Psalm 116 in its entirety. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death, they encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O Lord, to your, my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my, ear, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, we're grateful to hear your word to us this morning uh, and to see this song, this psalm that was sung to you and to your goodness. Uh, Lord, we pray that you make it our song today. And we pray that as we journey through 
your word this morning, your instruction, that you provide us with recognition and testimony of who you are and what you've done for our souls. Father, we pray that, that this, um, that I become a, a much, much softer voice than that of the Holy Spirit, which would love to inform and uh, apply this glorious truth to our lives today. We pray that that's the loudest sermon that's spoken this morning. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. And uh, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we're going to start off with a question right out of the gate. And we're going to have a series of questions. Why do you love the Lord? This is the only psalm, in the, well, except for one, out of 150, Kurt mentioned earlier, the only other place we see the very first line of a psalm start out with, I love the Lord, is Psalm 18. And it's interesting because, you know, like, it, it's, it's a declaration. Charles Spurgeon, he's a famous old school preacher back in, in, in the England days, back in, in another century, a few centuries ago, used to say that this first sentence of Psalm 116 should be the easiest declaration for every believer. I love the Lord. And why is this a question for us to start off with today? Why do we love the Lord. Now, if I ask you that, you might be thinking, well, I have, to, I have to have an answer. And your mind might be going with, well, I love the Lord because of this, because of this, because of this. And, and it might seem very Sunday schoolish to you. Some of you guys um, might be like, well, I love the Lord because I'm supposed to. You know, like that might be literally your mindset. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of supposed to. We might struggle with articulation of why we love the Lord. And the goal, I think, is of following Jesus is not to have good articulation of loving Jesus, but it's to have good application of why we love the Lord. And so what we want to give you today is to start with this question of why do you love the Lord and to trust that as we journey through Psalm 116 together, he's going to give us answers as to why, as to what applies to us, as to what's available to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So why do we love the Lord? He starts off with an answer. He, he answers it. I love the Lord. It's, he doesn't pose a question. He makes a statement. I love the Lord because he has. That is a great, those are great three words, because he has. In fact, if we were to look through the rest of the text, we see that he has heard. We see that he has inclined. We see that he has persevered. We see that he has saved. We see that he has dealt bountifully with us, and we see that he has delivered. And so there is this proclamation of we can give our love back to Jesus because of the things, to the Lord, because of the things that he has done. And the mirror image of that is what the psalmist says, because he has done these things, then I will do some things myself. Look at all the I wills throughout this text, starting in verse two. I will call on him. In verse, in verse 9, I will walk with the Lord in the land of the living. In verse 13, or in verse 13, I will lift up the cups of salvation. Verse 14, I will pay. Verse 17, I will offer. Verse 18, I will pay. He says the same thing again, his vows in the presence of people. Why is, is there this, this declaration of I love the Lord because he has done and I will do these things? Why is that? Because of all that he had been rescued from. You know, as we ask that question, why do you love the Lord? The reality is, is there's probably only one of two different kinds of people in the room, like people that, that absolutely feel like they either, either have or beginning to have an answer to that question or those that are like, oh, I don't know that I do. Like, I, I might love the, the ritual that is this thing called Southern Heritage 
Christianity where Sunday becomes the thing that we do in our week or sometimes this becomes the reset button for us because, you know, we've, we've messed up this week or we've done this, we've done that, and we've got to get our Sunday right, so maybe we'll have a better week. It's, it's almost like throwing a quarter into a wishing well or hoping for a good fortune in one of those little cookies that you get at the end of a Chinese dinner. You know, like sometimes that can be our mentality with Sundays, and that's not really what the, this question is asking. Why do you love the Lord? It's inviting us into understand all that he has done and all that we can do because of who Christ is. Why do you love the Lord? Let's look down verse 3 through 6. The author writes, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol, common word for hell, laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Now keep in mind in verse one, he says, I love the Lord because he has heard. And then he goes into some greater testimony here, some greater detail of exactly what had the Lord heard. He called on the name of the Lord. He said, oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And then five and six, gracious is the Lord and righteous. He is a merciful God. He preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. When I was brought low, he saved me. So let's look at Psalm 116, six. What has been your lowest? That's our next question this morning. For us to understand the, the declaration of, I love the Lord, I think it starts with the realization that the author had been in a place of unbelievable lowness. Now, I don't know what the lowest thing is for you. I have no idea. I don't know if it was a season that you've previously lived. It could be today. Like, it could have taken all of your might to even get out of bed this morning and come here today. It could be that, that there are situations that you know you're facing this week and you hope today is a little bit of a momentum to be able to maybe overcome those. Or, or maybe today you're seated in here because you know low. And praise the Lord, where you are right now is not defined by lowness anymore, but what God has brought you through. And so the reality is, is, is what has been your lowest? It's either today or it's a testimony of a previous day. Now, you might not realize what moved you from low to present. I don't even want to say hi because we might have places still yet to travel, places still to go in our journeys, but a place of higher living, a place of higher understanding, a place of a little bit more provision. If today is not your lowest, then that means you've journeyed from there. Would that be a fair statement to make? If today is not your lowest, then that means you've journeyed from there. And maybe similarly with the psalmist, we can say these same things. Now, his story seems to be one that his life was on the line. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of hell laid hold on me. I suffered distress and great anguish. But then I heard, I called on the Lord. And as we talked about last week, he heard me. And it wasn't just that sound waves entered his ears, as we said last week. He heard my place of distress, and he met me, or he made a way for me. He saved me. The simplicity of verse 6, when I was brought low, he saved me. It's a beautiful declaration. And in this, we also see a little bit of a model. Now, I'm not one of these people that try to find a ton of formulas in the Bible and say, if you do this, then God does this. Okay, I think we get in some trouble with that very often, probably more than we can, would really find ourselves in obedience. But if we were to look at this model of verses three through five, look at this. Maybe ask the question where I was. Where was the author? Snares of death encompassed him. 
The pangs of hell or Sheol laid hold on him. He suffered distress and anguish. Where was he? This is a great testimony model. What did he do? What did he do? He called on the Lord. And then what did he learn? Not what did he make God do, but what did he learn? Verse 5. Gracious is the Lord. That's what he learned. That where he was in his lowness, gracious and righteous and merciful is the Lord. And that goes right into what we see in verse 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Rest is something that our culture struggles with tremendously. Um, we struggle with it in terms of our busyness, our pace. We struggle with it in terms of being able to turn our mind or our hearts off. Um, some of you guys probably even struggle when you go on vacation. You know, like you don't even know what to do without constantly checking your phone or constantly checking your email. Um, I remember even when I was, was able to be gone for a couple weeks, um, a great friend actually said, try to disconnect for a day. Just try, just try. And my response was immediately, I can't. Like, I can't. And, and my reasoning for can't was, of course, naturally justifiable, right? It's like, well, I'm in another country, and I don't speak the language, and, you know, like, the, my cell phone's all I've got to, like, call an Uber and all this stuff. So, like, literally, I justifiably cannot disconnect. But that's still a lie, isn't it? I can't, that it's up to me, that it's up to the technology that's been afforded to me, that I have to trust in something other than the Lord, that I have to trust in this, or I have to trust in my ability or my productivity or my work. You know, as I was traveling in that time, I, I don't know how you get, I, I love going, and I, I love the journey of going, and I hate the journey of returning, not because I'll, it means I'm going back to normal, but because I just want it to happen instantly. Like, if I could teleport, it would always be on the way home from a trip of travel. You know, it's like that, oh my gosh, I've got 14 hours in a plane. You know, Butch was talking earlier today about how many, 36 hours, 34 hours, 39 hours. I still managed to undershoot that. 39 hours of commute, like that makes me want to break out in hives a little bit. Like, I can't stand the thought of being, of being like in transit for that long. And so the idea of rest makes me think of the idea of home. You know, like growing up when I was a kid, did you ever realize that your home has like a smell to it? And you know how you notice that? It's because you go to somebody else's home and it smells different, right? Like you put on your, you stay over at a friend's house and you wear like one of their shirts to sleep in and you're like, ugh. You know, like, and it's not that it's bad. Maybe it is. Maybe you have that kind of friend. But it's just different. Like it's not the same feel or the same smell that your house has and the comforts of it. Or there is a certain security to your places and your spaces that you just don't get when you're on someone else's terms. And I think if we're not careful, we can look at this, this verse seven, return on my soul to your rest as a comeback home. And I think in some ways it can communicate that. But I think the concept behind the word return is specifically directed at those that might be wayward. You know, if we've been learning through the Psalms, we started in the very first Psalm that we did this series, and the last time that I actually got to stand up here and even open the Word of God and speak was to do Psalm 1. And I've put, given myself a little challenge, and that's to take Psalm 1 and to let Psalm 1 be a like an introduction to any other Psalm that I can read. So just randomly draw Psalms 2 through 150 out of a hat, 
And I, I think, this is a challenge, I think you can read Psalm 1 as an introduction to Psalm 2 through Psalm 150, and it all applies. Okay? So I think that concept of delight in the law of the Lord and on that law or the word of the Lord, on that law, on that word, you meditate day and night. You be planted like a tree by a stream whose leaf does not wither, whose, flat, whose fruit does not fray, is fruitful in season and out of season. I think you could read that as, a, as an introduction to every single psalm in the entire Bible. And so if I look at that as an introduction to Psalm, to psalm 116 and I see return, O my soul, do you know who I see the psalmist or the word of the Lord saying return to? It's those that walk in the way of the sinners, those that sit in the seat of scoffers, um, or, or, or walk in the way of the wicked, stand with sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. It's people that have made their home somewhere else. And as, as we read Psalm 116, I think we're reminded and maybe even convicted that we might be people, that whether it's been for a weekend or for a long season, have made our home somewhere else. And verse 7 says, return home, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Um, have, you ever, have you ever come back around to the way things were supposed to be, and that person involved was an I told you so person? You ever have those people? Maybe that's a parent, maybe that's a sibling, maybe that's a boss or a friend, and they might have warned you or might have instructed you or maybe they did the thing where, and I'm sometimes bad with this, um, I remind myself of this phrase all the time, unsolicited advice is the same thing as criticism. Have you all ever heard that before? So do you ever have that person that just gives you advice even though you didn't ask for it? Right. And it's kind of like that's almost a little critical. I think sometimes we think that when we return home, if we were to look at the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15 of the New Testament, sometimes our return home comes with the recognition of, I was wrong. You know, like, I'm sorry. And you kind of brace yourself for that voice to be like, that's right, you were wrong. You should have known better. I tried to stand in your way. I tried to give you other options. I tried to tell you that if you did this, this would happen. I don't know if you have that person in your life or you have those people in your life or maybe you have been those people. Okay, we're not do a show of hands. But I would like to remind you of what it looks like to return to the Lord. It doesn't say, return on my soul to your rest, to your home, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with you, does it? It doesn't say that he's dealt begrudgingly with you. It doesn't say that he has dealt um, sarcastically with you. It says that he's dealt bountifully with you, that he has given you excess and more than you could ever imagine or ever even hope, and that he doesn't do so with a smirk on his face of like, I told you it was better here. You should have known better. Like he welcomes you as if it was the first time you got to hear the goodness of who he was, who he is. And so what is our response how has he dealt bountifully? That's our next question. How, how has he dealt bountifully with you? And what is our response to that? Is verse 8 and 9. So how has he dealt bountifully? Let's look at verse 8 and 9. He's delivered my soul from death. The same psalmist who was talking about fear of death just a few verses early. He's delivered my soul from death. He's delivered my eyes from tears. We got to spend some time in John 11 back before the summer started with the verse in 35 that Jesus wept. 
And we said that Jesus didn't weep because he was sad or because he was mad that he didn't get his way. He wept because Mary needed him to weep. Mary needed a Savior that weeps with her in the same way that we do. And so he's delivered my soul from death. He's delivered my eyes from tears. He knows we will have cried them. In fact, he will have cried them with us. He delivers my feet from stumbling. We say often here, and even in some of the ways that we try to do discipleship with people, that, that salvation, and we're going to get to this concept of salvation in just a moment, salvation is not just about what God saves us from, but he does save us from a lot of things. He saves us from death. He saves us from tears and sadness and despair. He saves us from stumbling. You know, it's like the inverse of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, which are, you know, if I lean on my own understanding, I don't get straight paths. I get stumbly paths. And if I trust God's understanding, I get straight and direct paths. It's kind of the opposite there. He saves us from those things, but he also, in verse 9, saves us for something. This is a great little section in the scripture of from and for, if you want to put that in the margin. Verse 8, these are some of the examples of what he saves us from, and you could certainly continue to fill in the blanks. Condemnation, sin, guilt, death, shame, sadness, despair, um, lack of ability to, to walk in the ways of his truth, all those things. Saves us from that. Verse 9, what does he save us for? To walk with the Lord in the land of the living. Here's what that means. When, you, when somebody talks about their walk, it doesn't mean like their actual gait, okay, their actual steps that they might be taking. Uh, in this context, the idea of the, of the author's walk is his, the way that he lives his life. Like he's going to live his life now before the Lord in the land and the view of everybody he comes in contact with. As we go on to see, and we'll get there in a moment, these vows that he lives in the presence of people, the promises of God that he lives out in the presence of people. It's the way of saying, like, I'm going to be a man or a woman that's marked by the covenant that I get to live in and get grafted into because of my belief in Jesus. I'm going to live that way. Not So what I've been saved from, delivered my soul from death, from tears, from stumbling, what I've been saved for, is to be and usher in the presence of God into the world, to walk in the land of the living, to meditate on his word night and day, to delight in it. And then we see verse 10 and 11 as we continue to journey down through here. And that brings up our next, our next question. Um, how has your belief in the word of the Lord ever wavered? And I, I could have asked this a different way. I could have asked this, have you ever had an identity crisis? Because when we look and Verse 10 and 11, because really the thing that, that is, could be your spoken identity, um, an identity crisis is oftentimes us disagreeing with God about who he says that we are, who he says that we can't be. And verse 10, I believed even when I spoke, I'm greatly aff afflicted. I want us to, to, to kind of put our thinking caps on with that one. What, what the author is saying here is, is previously when he was talking about where he was, that, that distress and anguish surrounded him and encompassed him. If he wasn't careful, he believed. This is he believed, even when he spoke. So it's kind of that, this is a great moment of, of, of realization of when the, when the Bible says that from the heart, the mouth speaks. It's right here. He believed in his heart that he, his identity was somebody that was greatly afflicted. And if you read that word afflicted, you go dig around in the Hebrew language, you find out that it really means defiled, that he was a person that was just, this was it. This is who he was. He was messed up, jacked up, 
defiled, unclean, and afflictive. He believed in his heart when he spoke that. He said in his alarm, just reactionary, hastily, at some translations, all mankind are liars. Let me give a little more modern-day translation of that. I should have known that I lie to myself. I'm not someone that's greatly afflicted. Why is he not someone that's greatly afflicted? Because the Lord has heard him. Because we read in verse 5, he's gracious and righteous and merciful, that he preserves, that he saved him of being brought low. What he previously thought was true of him was a lie. Because all of mankind, all it can give you, the best advice it can give you, doesn't give you life. And so how is your belief in the Lord of the word when the word, wow, word of the Lord, sorry, a little tongue tie there, word of the Lord wavered. It's when you start to think that worldly wisdom or, or advice from a friend or advice from a coworker or advice from a parent has more purpose and, and place in your life than the living word of God. As we were to read back, if we were to get back into John chapter 20, I write these things so that in him, so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and in him have life in his name. How's your belief in the word of the Lord wavered? This is a confession from the author. Similarly can be a confession of ours. And then we keep going. Verse 12. And this is kind of the place that we want to camp out the most um, as we kind of wrap up the day. Verse 12. It says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What shall I render? We don't use that word render very often. I use that word render sometimes because I really like to cook. And we talk about like rendering bacon, which basically means to cook it, you know, like the fat renders out and all that stuff. Render basically means pay. What shall I pay the Lord? And so the next question I have is, how do we repay the Lord? Now, that's a dangerous question. That's a dangerous question because a lot of times in our mindsets and in our deceitful heart that all mankind is a liar. We think that if God gives us such a great gift like salvation or gives us such a great gift in the work of his son that I got to do something to pay him back for it. I got to do something to render back to the Lord for all his benefits to me. I owe him something. But that's like what you do with your mortgage. If we read Ephesians, it's not what you do when it comes to being a recipient of the goodness of God, you don't owe him or pay him back. You know what paying back the Lord is? It's always receiving. Paying back the Lord is always receiving. And so maybe a better question to ask than how do we repay the Lord is what's the appropriate response to the Lord's goodness in our life. And I want to spend some time here on, on how do we repay. Look at Acts 17, 14, or 24 through 25. It's the, the next slide. I've got it up there. Um, Acts 17, 24 through 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And this is where we get this. We don't pay him back. Nor is he served by human hands. We don't give him back anything that he doesn't already have, as though he needed something. He doesn't need it. He's God of the universe, like he's throned on high. He is being constantly showered with praise and glory, and none of that is dependent upon us. Since he gives himself to all mankind, he gives life and breath and everything. So if we can already say the goal is not repaying the Lord, the goal is living in response to his goodness, then what does verse 13 mean? Our response is to lift up the cup of salvation 
and call on the name of the Lord. Now, at first glance, that may look like a toast. And in some ways it could be like, hear, hear to the God that saves. I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will honor him. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will say that my life is a declaration of a God that that put me in a place that I couldn't have put myself. And in some cases, that is an appropriate translation or an appropriate application of Psalm 116, verse 13. But I want to ask you to, again, think in caps a little bit this morning. There's one reason to lift up a cup. Like think of a wedding rehearsal or wedding reception. Like, like you're lifting up, you're making a toast, you're, you're you know, honoring someone. But what's another reason that we lift up a cup and call someone's name? That we covered celebration. What's another reason? Like you're out at a restaurant, you're going to, you're going to town. What's that? To be filled. The cup's empty, right? Like I want to I lift it up. I need to call and ask someone. Again, like when I was in... Portugal, um, our, we are, the United States is the culture of excess. If you didn't know that, we clearly are the culture of excess in the, in the entire world. And there are people that are coming constantly to your, like if you go to a restaurant, there are people coming to your table, oh, can I get you some more water? Can I get you some more drink? Or like the refill stuff is just readily available for you to go get your own. Oftentimes in some other places around the world, um, you don't get free refills everywhere because that's such an American concept. You know, you actually pay by the drink. Every single time you want something to drink, whether it's a bottle of water or a Coke or whatever, like you're you're buying it every single time. And so waiters and waitresses don't often ask if you want something else to drink because it costs you money. You with me? So they wait for you to say like, hey, waiter, need some more. You know, like I need some more drink or I would like some more drink or get their attention. And, And if you look at this, maybe through that mindset or maybe through that lens, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. You know what that means? That every single day we ought to live each day as if we are pouring out our salvation and we trust, we lift it up and we trust God, you're the only one that can fill it. And guess what he does? He fills it every single time. And he loves it, for he's dealt bountifully with us. He never fills our cup begrudgingly when it comes to understanding salvation that's made possible only in Jesus. In fact, he loves to pour it and pour it all over your tablecloth and get it all over you and get it all over everything like, I will constantly fill you and remind you of salvation. Next week in in Psalm 51, we're going to be journeying there. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In, In essence, fill me up again, Jesus. Remind me of the salvation you've given me in your son. That's a fancy way to say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. I want to be somebody that shares the good news of Christ. But do you know who needs it probably more than anybody every day? Me. When I look into the mirror, I need it. Because if I don't live in its truth, I'll never share it to someone else. I'll never invite anyone else to drink. I'll never invite anyone else to to walk in the same recognition that I'm walking in. That I'll start to believe things about me. I'll start to waver on the word of the Lord. I lift up the cup of salvation Because God loves filling it. And so verse 13, our response, how do we pay back the Lord? We just keep drinking deeply from the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he keeps filling us with Jesus. He is faithful to do that. We are, if we are faithful to do that. And then 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord. It's a fancy way of saying, and I will be a covenant person. I will be somebody that lives 
in the covenant of Christ and lives in the covenant of God and his people all the days of my life. The last little bit, we're not going to spend as much time there, verses 15 through 19, are really a great little end reflection. Precious is the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. He talks about how early on he was terrified of death, but now because God's dealt bountifully with him, death is precious. Oh Lord, I am your servant. You've loosed my bonds. I will offer you thanksgiving. So this is basically a, a, a way for him to describe how he's going to live out verse 14. Pays his vows to the Lord in the presence. He, in the presence of people. He lives as a servant. He's thankful. Um, he calls on the name of the Lord. He even re-says that in verse 18. And then in all of his places and spaces, he praises the Lord. But as we conclude, I want to ask us this question. What does this psalm tell us of Jesus? Now, you might say, well, Andrew, like, it's clear, like, Jesus is the one that fills that cup of salvation. Like, yeah, that's, that's true. Absolutely. And I want us to, to get that as we walk away, as we walk away today. But I want to invite you into something else as we kind of conclude here this, this morning. Psalms 113 through 118 were commonly referred to as the Hallel Psalms. What that means is that before the Passover meal and after the Passover meal, every year in a Jewish calendar, that they would sing songs preemptively, like to introduce the meal, and then they would sing songs to conclude it. You see this scripturally. I don't have it on the screen, but you see this scripturally in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in the Gospel of Mark, that it says, and after they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This was the upper room moment where Jesus was having the Last Supper with his disciples, and it says in both of those accounts, after they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, where ultimately Jesus was betrayed, he was arrested, and that began his process of being tortured and being crucified. What hymn did he sing? Well, he probably sang at the conclusion of his meal, Psalm 116, Psalm 117, and Psalm 118. Now, if we know that, how different does it look for us to read Psalm 116? We mentioned in Hebrews, when we journeyed through Hebrews, that we have a sympathetic high priest. That he knows everything we've been through, and he's walked through them as well. But imagine if you're Jesus, and you read, Precious in the Lord is the death of his saints. When you know that you are the most elite saint that could ever have ever has ever walked the earth. Jesus even argues with God a little bit, as much as you can have a sinless argument because Jesus didn't sin. He argues with God in the garden. Can you take this cup from me? He says, no, I can't. You're going to have to walk through this precious. Jesus knowing what he was going to go through precious in the sight of the Lord. Or, Or if we read, if you're Jesus and you're singing, for you have delivered my soul from death. Like he's getting ready to die. You've delivered my soul from death. You've delivered my eyes from tears. You've delivered my feet from stumbling. I will walk resurrected in the land of the living. So where do we see Jesus in this psalm? We see that in the exact same way that the the Holy Spirit means for this psalm to be a song and a testimony for us. It was also a song and a testimony for Jesus. What does he render to the Lord It's ironic that the same cup of salvation that we would lift up, that the the cup that Jesus lifted up wasn't one of salvation. I mean, it was, but it was ultimately one of foaming, steaming, hot wrath of God. And he drank it up so that our cup of salvation could be filled every single 
day. And that invites us to the last question that Psalm 116 would ask us. How do we praise the Lord? How does your heart praise the Lord? We look through, we journey, they aren't going to be on the screen, but it started with, what's been your lowest? How has he dealt bountifully with you? How have you sometimes exchanged or wavered when you hear the word of the Lord? How do we repay or how do we appropriately respond to the goodness of God? Where do we see Jesus and his life in this psalm? And it concludes with this question. What does all of what we've journeyed through today, what does a God that deals bountifully in us, a God that fills our cup of salvation, a God that is merciful, is righteous, is true, is, is available, is gracious to us, how does that invite us to praise the Lord? And as we come to a time of conclusions, we come to a time of communion. Up here in the front, we've got little wafers and little cups in the back. We, we uh, actually have a, a piece of bread and a bowl that you can tear and dip. So it's kind of, you can choose which one you want to go to. But you're invited to come to this table today. And these small little bitty cups aren't like huge giant cups of salvation. But our invitation as you come today is for you to participate in the, I lift up the cup of salvation. I drink it for myself and I trust, Jesus, that you fill it back up. I trust that you fill me back up. I trust, that's how I might praise the Lord today, or, or I might be reminded of when I was at a lowest point in the journey that he's taken me on, or the journey that's still in process. But even the fact that you can be here today, even if this morning was the lowest point, even the fact that you can be here today means that he's not done with you, means that you got at least to this portion of the journey. Or, or maybe you, you recount the ways that he deals not bitterly or begrudgingly, but bountifully with you. How might you praise the Lord? And in doing so, how might you start to sing the exact same song that we're all trying to sing? I love the Lord. for He's dealt bountifully with me. And I will lift up my cup of salvation and call on his name.